Welcome to Room for Growth. A Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. All right. Welcome to Room for Growth, Billy. Today, we're going to get into the weeds. We're going to get a little nerdy. I know you were geeked up for our conversation today. And so something we don't talk a lot about is that paid versus kind of owned organic mix. And that's a topic that certainly impacts every single client, every single business is a tough kind of game that everybody plays. So talk more about that, kind of why we're excited about getting into that today. Yeah. So we are going to talk to Fabian Pierre Nichols, who is a former VP of marketing, but also growth for Smart News. If you've never used Smart News, it's sort of a news aggregation app experience with a really good complimentary channel experience to it. We are going to dig in pretty deep with Fabian. So he starts, he's going to talk about like leadership at a high level and especially in tough economic times, how to just do more with less and where to focus your teams. But then we are going to pretty quickly like dive deep. Fabian gets into things to keep in mind when you're considering what to set as your targets for app acquisition based on your business model and your goals and the type of funding that you have, whether you're private or a public business. He's really pragmatic, which I loved. I just feel like he understands the balance between sort of internal business politics and some of the forces that you like have to please when you're thinking about putting a new digital product into the world versus the actual limits of the technology themselves versus what teams can produce and test. Like he balances those things really, really well in his recommendations. And then we get into one of my favorite spaces, which is how to do really good content recommendations in a manual way. So without the use of AI, most hopefully if you've listened to this podcast more than once, you know that I'm a big AI believer, but a bit of a skeptic that most people are ready to be using AI at scale. So I love that Fabian Pierre talks a lot about where do you start? How can you create hyper-local content for many different types of users? What's a good use case? What are some good rules and structure and ways to frame that algorithm so that you can be successful without having to apply AI to it? So those are some of my highlights from the conversation. Billy, what did you take away? Yeah, I mean, I think some of your personalization topics that you're talking about there, I think it would be easy to listen and say, okay, well, he's talking about news recommendations, content recommendations for news. That's a whole different game. But I think so many brand marketers are missing the opportunity to just do some of these basic kind of fundamental programmatic type of tweaks that he's going to share on as well. Right out of the gate, we start talking about the challenges that we're all seeing, challenges in reduced budget, reduced headcount, do more with less. And as you'll see, Fabian, he didn't react with a big emotional kind of mm-hmm. long-winded way of approaching that. It's really like get back to the basics and focus on what's delivering value right away. And so I don't want to answer the question for him, but I think that's a, a really timely and relevant kind of guidance for our current moment in time. Totally. Yeah. Not to get too far into sort of like willow tree core values and things that we love and appreciate as a company. But one of our core values is simplify complex problems, Yeah, which is just this constant urge to say, everything can be hard. Everything can be complicated. It can be big. It can be too much and a lot. And how do you create simplicity out of that? How do you create Mm -hmm. sort of clarion calls that everyone can understand? Instead of doing a hundred things, how do you focus on the right one thing? Pierre, 
did this in a way that is really magical. Like as we're talking to him, watch how consistently he takes something super complex and turns it into a very easy, like here's the one thing to do. Here's two things to do. He's great at subtraction versus addition in terms of how he explains concepts. And I really loved that in our conversation. Okay. Well, we'll stop uh, stealing his thunder and get to our interview with Fabian. Thanks for listening. All right. Hello, Fabian Pierrot Nicholas. You are the COO and co-founder of Remix, which is a leading diversity, equity, and inclusion SaaS platform. Um, and you're also an advisor for Smart News, which is a leading news app in the US and Japan. Previously, I know you were the VP of Marketing and Growth for Smart News and the Vice President of Marketing at App Annie, which is a tool that we use all the time at Willow Tree that allows you to sort of track feedback in real time coming in about the app experience itself. You've been the general manager of mobile at Perfect World, and you also have an MBA and a BA from the Grenoble School of Management in France. Welcome to the show today. Oh, it's great to be here, you know. And yes, I'm old, so it's a few years of career <laughs> that went through. Well, great to have you. I want to dive in immediately with a bummer of a question. We started high with your introduction. <laughs> I want to take us right to a bummer, which is... Nobody really wants to say the words recession, but I think all around us right now, we are feeling the potential signs and symptoms of some headwinds in the economy. Certainly, we are hearing about a lot of our clients and the brands that we work with just being really cautious about spending, cautious around hiring. Some are even facing budget cuts, particularly in their marketing budgets or headcount reductions have been happening across tech in a really news forward way. This is a topic that you have spent a lot of time and thought leadership on, really talking about how you keep morale high and you keep outcomes at the center of performance, even during tough times. Give us a little bit of your sense of how are you feeling about the economy right now? What message do you have for business leaders? Yeah, well, first off, right, we are fresh of uh, Silicon Valley Bank being rescued in a few days. I have to admit that among, you know, friends who are entrepreneurs, I think there was a big amount of relief, right, when it comes Monday and people are like, yes, you're going to still have an access to, to your cash. So you, you won't have to struggle to pay, make payrolls and so on. So that was good overall, I think, in terms of uh, not building more headwinds for gross leaders. For me, I see really like sort of two action plan, right, for any gross leader. Just having your budget being impacted. If it's just your budget and I live through, you know, 50% plus budget cuts, just as I was onboarding smart news, I think it's important to just message to your team like, hey, we're not in hyper growth mode, growth at all cost anymore. That means you will have the capability to focus more on understanding the channels you have instead of just testing new channels all the time of understanding, you know, key features or IDs that you wanted to test, but just really be thoughtful in selecting, you know, the winning ideas and ultimately negotiate as well with your partners, right? You have the capability with some external partners like SDK and so on to try to say, hey, you know, my budget is being cut. Could you help me out there? And so I think this one is relatively straightforward. It's harder, of course, if you have to have layoff, right? Like 30, 40, 50% cut have been like a common theme in many tech company. And so for me, like, then I see sort of three key steps that I've followed, right? When in the past I had to go through such time. First off, treat the outgoing people right, regardless of whether they were top performer or not, right? It will really matter to the one staying that those people were treated 
correctly. So in terms of, as a leader, you could push for correct severance package, you could help them with referral, right thinking the recommendations, and ultimately say, hey, I'm here for you. I could take the time, right? The second aspect is you need to associate your team when you're doing arbitrage about who is going to take task A, B, C, mm. or which task are we going to drop because they're not any more important and we have less headcount. I think building it with them really helped them sort of through the grief period. And they could take ownership and say, hey, this is really my task now. It was the task of A, B, and C that left, but now I'm going to take ownership of that. And the last aspect is about 30, 40 days in, Grief period have passed, you know, make sure you rebuild the bond of trust with your team, right? And do a team bonding time. That's sort of my one, two, three template. Yeah, I think that's a great reminder that even if you change one teammate on a team, you didn't just add one teammate, you changed the entire chemistry of that team. And so it has to be rebuilt. It's a really good lesson for anyone who's going through that extreme challenge. And to kind of layer onto that, so the marketers that are leading MarTech platform decisions, MarTech strategy decisions, and deciding how to optimize or spend that sometimes reduced budget. It's hard days because we've been in a period of spend and acceleration. And now all of a sudden you have to maybe do more with less. And let's zoom into the growth stack a little bit. So Billy and I are constantly talking to brands that are still trying to figure out, okay, do we need a CDP? Do we need the full stack? How can we go without one or two? And so we'll just tee you up to talk about some of the most important considerations that a brand that you think a brand should take when considering partners, selecting partners and developing, creating the right stack. Yeah. So to your point, when you're building or rebuilding or optimizing a growth stack, I think the first thing I've seen uh, so many teams not do, right? Because they're like, oh, I'm pressed with time. So I'm going to go with whoever vendors the best at marketing is being thoughtful and building a quick framework with like some of the core needs and key features you're looking for. That I call it a light request for proposal framework, right? You have to organize what you want and at least talk to four or five people in the space. And mm-hmm. you're going to ultimately realize that even though they might be marketing themselves both as like mobile engagement platform, there is core differences in their strength and as well in the unit economics, right? Because some companies might be like late stage public versus, you know, they are aggressive. They just raise a big round of funding. So this is important as growth leaders, right? You need to provide your team with guidance when it comes to this framework and make it as objective of a process as possible. And this way you sort of remove some of the sales influence that could enter in, right? Because that's their goal as B2B SaaS platform, right? To have great salespeople that will convince you they are the best fit to your needs. But this way you could take the step back. The second core elements I often recommend because you always have, especially on new fields, you always have like two or three vendors that emerge and people are like, oh, I need to test them. I'm always like, hey, consider the scale of your company. If you're big, large public companies, really some very specific needs, it's unlikely a very small startup is going to be the best fit, right? You're putting yourself to a big risk because if you know you create the legal risks like uh, data privacy risk all those risks ultimately your job is going to be on the line right so you need to think about the scale of the business you're going to work with versus the scale of your business and the last aspect is i think again due to the crisis period really consider what's making a business impact or not i think there is some great platform out there where helping you organize all the SaaS subscription and if your finance team or your it team hasn't pushed for those platforms 
you as a growth leader could be pushing for it. And they help you essentially rationalize and realize that often you have 100, 200, 300 SaaS vendors, right? And some of them, there is duplications across the organization. So if you could be the person that says, I've helped the organization save a million, right? It's much easier to sell in maybe a new vendor of 100K that you're bringing in than if you are just constantly asking for more and not thinking about optimizing the SaaS spend across your org. Yeah, I think those are all really good tips. We are constantly helping brands weigh out their order of operations. For instance, should they be really focused on their data collection and health and automation through something like a customer data platform? Or do they start with a platform like a Braze or like something in a suite of products like a Salesforce type product where they can just get messages out that at least start to generate some of that return? And then of course, you're wearing a branch sweatshirt right now. That's another tech partner we love that primarily does deep linking and attribution. So they're both an insights partner as well as a UX optimization partner to really help drive performance. They kind of hit it both. But then there's also insights. Should we be learning everything that we can? Should we be getting messages to market? Or should we be focused on our core like data capabilities and the connectivity of all of our platforms? What's your advice when you think just purely from a capabilities standpoint? What do you often prioritize? And where do you think brands can sometimes cut corners? Well, yeah, I don't know if there is a one-size-fits-all right approach to what to prioritize, because I think you always need to come back to what is the North Star metrics for your business, A, and B, what is your team more specifically evaluated upon, right? I've been in companies where their capability to sort of maintain or increase the stock price was really linked to the capability to demonstrate top-line growth, right? And especially top-line growth outside of sometimes their whole market. So taking an example, when I was at DNA, you know, they acquired this U.S. company, they spent $400 million in the process, they wanted for a few earnings down the line to be able to say, hey, the U.S. business is now making XX million per month. And that was the key mandate for the company level, right? So always think about that, right? What will be the most important for if you're private, your board, your investors, if you're public, right, for the stock markets when the earnings time come. The second layer is more how are you being evaluated internally? If you sometimes you feel like, okay, if there is a misalignment between the top level company goal and how I'm being, you know, evaluated and mm. how my team will receive their bonuses, you do want to have an exchange with your boss in that. I will take an example, it's pretty typical in mobile app growth. Often you still had people who were like evaluated on like the number of new signups or number of new subscribers and so on without factoring in the return on ad spend. I do think you need ultimately to balance the two. Of course, you need to try to aim to generate a certain amount of business and growth right, for your company. But if it's at the expense of the return to ad spend, are you truly doing a good service mm-hmm. to your future budgets yeah. and your future team size and ultimately the health of the business? Probably not. So sometimes it's your job as a growth leader to go and educate, you know, your management, your CMO or CEO sometimes, right, about that and the notion of return on that spend. I think if you're shying away from that, again, you it's fine in the short term, right? You may get your bonus one time, two times, but ultimately in the long run, it's not good for you. It's not good for your team. Yeah. That's such a good, I think, even clarion call to leaders right now that if leaders are having to go through budget cuts or lead an organization through a time where there's fewer resources, what can you subtract from your goals? How can you unify people more significantly around one North Star metric versus 15 or versus metrics by different siloed departments? 
that's a way to get everybody working towards a single thing faster and making decisions faster about what to prioritize, where to spend money, where not to spend money, what the message should be. So I think that was a great subtle piece of advice, especially when there are fewer resources being invested in these types of initiatives. Yes. So Fabian, you, as we mentioned in your intro, were a big part of the smart news application. And, you know, we talk a a lot on our show about delivering personalized experiences that delight consumers. And within that, that application, there were a significant amount of process that you went through to meet users evolving interests and kind of changing interest and delivering that personalized experience. What process did you follow to identify those changes? How did you balance user feedback and preferences that consumers have with the vision that you had for the product? And can you talk about that balance that I think a lot of our marketers go through on a daily basis? Yeah. So from a process perspective, I think, you know, the first step when I joined uh, Smart News and ultimately did my my first product marketing hire is we had to build an understanding of what the news market was in the U.S. and the consumer segmentation, right? What are the core segments and open are they or not to the concept of news aggregation, right? Having multiple sources and to the concept, of course, of reading their news on mobile. It seems odd to say now, right, in 2023, but back in 2017, there were still a fair amount of users that were just reading news on web or watching TV and not necessarily connecting with news app on mobile. Yeah, That was, you know, the beginning of the rise of news on mobile. And so first step, consumer segmentation. Second step seems to go without saying, but once you have six, seven, eight segments in a market, you need to pick your battles, right? You have a limited amount of budget, you have a gross objective. So go after the two or three or four segments. Usually I recommend two or three that truly have the best fit to what you're offering and where you could essentially lay out a good growth plan, right? And how to win with those segments versus like the competition. A step that is a little bit more in the back end versus consumer centric, but nevertheless, I think very important early on is the alignment with product. You want to understand their process. You want to educate them on your process and ultimately sort of you know, build a joint roadmap. When it comes to mobile app and mobile services, but I think it's true more and more for every single business that have like a, a website and an app and it's connected with the consumer on a more regular basis. If those two teams are like church and state, separated or at least supposed to be separated, they may not work efficiently together. And as a result, the, the relationship with the consumer will suffer. So again, building those common processes and understanding of, you know, the deliverable is key. And then, you know, last but not least, you know, all the tools in the world are awesome and partners, right? Like you guys, but at the end of the day, it's as well about the quality of the team you're building, right? Yeah. And being thoughtful about making sure you don't onboard too much budget and too much tools ahead of having people that are the best operator possible in the space, I think is key. Now, I think the second part of your question was like, you know, the challenges in terms of, uh, you know, what the consumer wants versus the, the roadmap of the company. And I think we had such a, a journey at Smart News where initially we were like, hey, 2020 for Japan is about Tokyo Olympics, for the US about the elections and, you know, it's all set. And then coronavirus came, the protest came in the US, the rollout of the vaccine right, in Japan. And so we had to adapt. And so this balance is indeed hard to strike because at some point, I think as a company, we probably became addicted to ship quickly features that were serving the needs in the moment. Yeah. Except we probably forgot, you know, working on the core offering, right? And 
how we provide great content recommendation, a balanced news diet, giving you perspective from all sides became the priorities. And I think this is always a risk, right? Always chasing the latest trend without refocusing sometimes, at least part of your time on the core user experience and what makes you unique in the first place. Why did you attract thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people to your product in the first place? And I think one way of seeing it work quite well could be when you have the capability to sort of within the product team and within the product marketing team to have at least your one person is more in charge of those new experiments and discovering mm. what's next. And one person's more in charge of like making sure that you stay relevant around your core value proposition. So ultimately, you know, having more than one PM, having more than one product marketing manager as well. Vivian, let's switch gears and talk about something that is really near and dear at Willow Tree. It's a common problem we encounter with the brands that we work with just about every day, and it has no perfect right answer. So I'm curious to dig into your right answer, which is how on earth do you launch an app in a way that drives the best user acquisition possible? And when I say this, I understand that if you're a really well-established brand who already has loyal followers, the way that you do app acquisition might be very different than if you are a startup company where the app is the business itself and you really can't do anything in terms of sales or revenue until that app hits market. It's different for public companies versus private. And if your board is really focused on how many people downloaded the app versus how much value are we driving from people who actually use the app, there are a lot of trade-offs here. And there's a lot of different ways that you can market a new app, everything from app store optimization to owned channel to paid media. Talk to us a little bit about what you saw work and be most effective and how you went about um, launching the Smart News app and acquiring new users. Yeah. So both for Smart News app in the US and then I'm as well advisor for a mobile game studio um, that's based in France, in my hometown in Lyon called Million Victories. And so around the same year, 2017, I had the challenge of those two two apps, right, needed to take off. And I think always the first step when it comes to apps, right, I think is understanding the dynamic on iOS versus Android. But those are, at this point, they have 99.9% of the market. And especially when it comes to the US, you have a fairly different set of users on each, and as well, the platform themselves offer different features. So in both instances, right, Smart News was historically a little bit bigger on iOS than Android. But taking a look at Data AI, which was happening before, right, Data I realized that most of the news aggregation discovery was really reaching out much bigger audience on Android than on iOS. Mm. You know, iOS was the realm of Fox News and CNN and New York Times, but uh, a lot of the, I will say, predecessor to smart news like Flipboard were much bigger on Android. So I was like, okay, there's probably something there. And for mobile game studio, similarly, I think Android is sort of underrated. It's great if you're casual games, but especially if you have a core game, Android is having this very geeky mm. audience that love their new devices, love their Pixel or Samsung S23. And ultimately, that we're really spending a lot of money. And more importantly, the platform, Google Play platform, is much more mature when it comes to doing soft launch and testing your product. So even if you're a huge Apple fan, you know, throw away your own perception and really look at the market data, really look at where your target consumer is between those two platforms. That is the first step. The second one is, I think, the business model when you're very reliant on like subscribers or whales, right, for the case of mobile games, like core games versus advertising. I think 
you will ultimately need to understand the business model in depth because that should guide your testing roadmap, right? Which mm. paid channel are you going to test first? Are you going to focus more on organic versus paid and so on and so forth? I have, and probably my own bias coming more from the paid marketing side historically, I always tend to say, you know, very early on, and as long as you've raised at least Series A, the upside with paid marketing versus like ESO, SEO, you name it, a lot of the other channels, it's, it's very controllable. And at first, I think you should focus on trying to demonstrate that you could have CAC that is, you know, at least equivalent to the lifetime value you extract. And so I tend to say, look at the budget you have, you know, divide it up between four or five channel hypothesis you have on paid and focus on getting that right first. You could always then optimize your unit economics by growing the number of organics as a second step. Yeah. Uh, so I tend to have that preference. But so one platform, two, essentially figure out paid and three, figure out the right partners because I have a bias as well that early on, rather than building a team and then having to lay off people and rehire people because you realize it's not the right strategy, working with partner like you guys and other partners in the space will be usually a good idea to sort of go quickly to market with your hypothesis. Out of curiosity, I think this is really interesting that you say, focus on break even for CAC. So basically, what's the total investment and spend for marketing towards acquisition into the app over how many users and what would break even be and then try to achieve that number. Let's just pretend that number was, you know, 100,000 users for the amount of spend you're putting in or whatever. That's an interesting recommendation. Over what window of time did you use? Well, yeah, I think it all depends on the cash at hand, right? And capital available and what the expectation is made. I think, again, if you take an example around like games, you have a spectrum for hyper casual games, you're expected to return in seven days. Why? Because usually users have mostly 99% have churned by day seven anyway. Mm-hmm. Hence the fact that you can extract your margin from what's, you know, the few percent that remains after. And then you have like super hardcore mobile games like the 4X, you know, the game of war in the old days type of category where recouping at six months is not a problem because you have a very flat retention curve past 30 days. And so typically, right, you you could extract your margin from like month six to year two or year three. So it really varies in taking just this example of a category, right, in terms of the payback window. But of course, I would say it varies as well versus the stage of your your company, right? The earlier you're at, the more limited the cash is. Therefore, (laughs) you don't necessarily have the luxury to say, we're going to recoup guys in six months, in nine months, in 12 months. And like, well, then we're going to need to stop doing marketing for two or three months until we get this money back. And I've seen it, you know, happen in some mobile game studios where they have like stop and go phenomenon, right? And partially right now, because the cash environment, it's harder to get money from VCs unless you demonstrate, you know, a recoup period that's shorter. I will say it's, it's, um, I've seen people that were buying at six or nine months, like shorten it to like three months and therefore, you wow. know, implicitly lower their spend. Hmm. So talking about some of these, the mix of experiments and how you drive user engagement and adoption. Can you tell us about a experiment that you thought would work and or went differently than you were expecting and kind of what you learned from that? Yeah. So I think a good example is, you know, a few years old, but at that time I was like, hey, you know, marketing is as well about owning the onboarding and we're going to select an external vendors, which at that time was Linplum that I used in a previous company. So did still the RFP process compared to four or five and I was like, okay, let's pick Linplum. And the hypothesis was like, if we create more differentiation in terms of onboarding experience, 
depending on where you came from on the paid media and more consistency between what you clicked on and ultimately the onboarding will be better. And plan all of that. We'll look at the top of funnel. We're like, okay, we're going to have those four or five onboardings. We're going to test them. In one parameter, I probably didn't factor in with, you know, the team member that was supporting me there. And with Lean Plum is latency. And especially because latency to get the click through your MMP server and then back and so on and so forth. There was, I think, a second to a second and a half, except our app was loading within half a second. So we did not have the time to materially show something to the users before they were already in the app during the onboarding. And we tried to solve in many ways the problem, never figured that out. So, you know, I will say some, we had a front-end engineers to do the implementation and probably will have needed hindsight, right? It's always 2020. Backend engineer to help us figure out that wait, the latency is too high to actually you know perform the test that you want to do, and that's what have prevented us from churning past. The, I think we did a three months uh, proof of concept with Inplum, and then we churned. We spent a bunch of time, a little bit of money for something that could have been probably prevented by a better tech due diligence. So talk to your engineers, even the backend ones. <laughs> Always the right messages. Talk to your engineers. They will exactly. solve the problem for you if you tell them what problem they're solving, for sure. Vivian, you achieved a really impressive $2 billion valuation in your previous role at Smart News. And I find that really curious because the news marketplace is extremely competitive. We work with a lot of media and news brands, and we know how hard it can be to differentiate those experiences. Talk to us about what you did in the really crowded app marketplace that Smart News was in to differentiate from competitors and then also make that value clear to the potential users you were trying to acquire? Yeah. Well, I think the first step, I've already described it a bit, right? Really focus on where, you know, your category could thrive in terms of platform. And in this case, that was Android. So once I understood, okay, there is a bigger opportunity probably with the Android audience when it comes to multi-sources, you know, news aggregation, I think it was like, okay, what do I know about Android? What is, you know, CAC versus LTV? And ultimately there was a great arbitrage opportunity mm. because the lifetime value, you know, the value we generated through advertising, which was the, the core business model, smart news, was not having a big gap versus iOS, but of course, Android users tend to be typically, you know, 30, 40, 50% cheaper sometimes than iOS, right? And so that was my first step. And then thinking about, Android, I asked myself, okay, we have a new product right in the US. No one knows smart news. I think our awareness mm -hmm. was like 5% or 4%. Mm -hmm. huh. And where is the first touch point? Where are people discovering such product? And the first immediate answer is like a lot of people on Android are discovering products when they're getting preloads on their devices. And so I was like, okay, how do I get in this like first point of contact the consumer have when they get a new device, right? With apps. And the answer was digital turbine was iron source, right? Who are ultimately representing and, and white labeling their solutions to all the big carriers, all the big OEMs. And for us, that was sort of a secret weapon to reach this Android audience mm. as first step. I think the second step I had to ask myself was like, where are the consumers currently interacting with news content? The answer was like social platform were really big and especially Meta at that time, Facebook. Mm -hmm with all the biases <laughs> that you, you can know, right? I don't know if you saw the red feed versus blue feed experiment, but you could be on yeah. the same platform and see very different news. And so I was like, okay, it's important to figure out how to crack Facebook. 
And the answer was programmatic content where we ingested all the content from the app, turned it into ads at the hyper local mm -hmm. level and that, you know, 5x our click through rate. And the third layer was like, well, people are interacting with news content on TV, especially if they're over 50 years old, they're still watching TV news. And so, you know, testing TV as a channel, linear TV at first was like CNN, Fox News, big debate on keeping our ads or not about the on Tucker Carlson show. This is another story. <laughs> and yeah, ultimately, you know, that worked extremely well. We ended up even running ads during the Democratic debates, right, of 2020 campaign and seeing like 10, 15, 20,000 install uh, for a 15 seconds ad, which was really great wow. from a unit wow. economics perspective. I have to dig into something you just said again, because it's a space I'm super curious in, but is very hard to do. And you just glazed over it as if it were the most simple thing in the world. You basically said, we started developing a ton of programmatic content, and then we turned that content into ads. And then we deployed those ads at sort of a hyper-local level. Will you just break that down one step further? Like what programmatic content did you create? How did you even know what to focus on? Content creation is expensive. It's hard work. It's still not easy to produce. Yeah. And then you turned it to ads. How did you make compelling ads? And then what did hyperlocal really mean to you all? Yeah. Well, so I think, you know, I tend to say people are always like, hey, could you discuss this or not? And my take is like Facebook ad library made a lot of the strategy of your competition, you know, publicly available. You don't need any more data mm -hmm. AI or sense of tower or those services to actually see the creatives your competition is putting together. And so I think at that time, we had a pretty intense competition with uh, a news app that's like mostly based in China called Newsbreak, right? That did as well a lot of interesting growth, mostly centered on the meta platform. To my knowledge, you know, preloads came. They came later than us to preloads and uh, they never, you know, ultimately did TV ad advertising. The notion there was to say, hey, a lot of the content that's currently being used by other news property is being ultimately their own content, right? They advertise the news because that's ultimately what people want to connect with is content. And so the capability to, you know, take the headline, uh, header images and headlines, extract it from the app, right? In a giant spreadsheet that was refreshing every day and pass that to Facebook. And so our first step was uh, dynamic product ads, which is a Facebook product that was built more for retail and essentially pass this feed to Facebook and be like, okay, it's working, but the volume was pretty good, but the quality was low because Facebook tend to prioritize clicks. So it's very mm -hmm. clickbaity news. Like, you know, this fight happened between the tiger and a snake or, you know, <laughs> a lot of things that were not essentially necessarily very aligned with our product user experience, but we try to favor quality news. And so we were like, okay, how could we do a better job? And so a few months before COVID, so I think it was like Q4 2019, we figured out that ultimately what people want the most in a climate where news mm -hmm. can be pretty political and controversial is local news is the safe space, right? Mm -hmm. It's something you could relate to. And so we did some small manual pilot, right? First test the hypothesis quickly before asking your engineer to build something. And indeed, you know, that was working really well. And the smaller the city was, the better it was working. And so we ended up working with our content team. We ended up adding thousands of news sources across the U.S. for 3,000 different cities or, or counties. And then, you know, again, building a feed for each of them. And 
working with the Facebook team to get them to unlock their API for us because you're not alone to create 3,000 pages you know, with an API. It was a sort of novel use case. So there was a lot of things to do. There was a lot of legal heavy lifting with our law firm to make sure we were okay to do that and not be sued by anyone. And so ultimately, you know, that took a good to, to be fully live in all those cities and so on took upwards of six months. It happened a few weeks before COVID and then COVID wow. happens and the demand for local news probably three or four X because everybody wanted to yeah. know what was happening. So that we did not plan obviously for it, but that benefited as well from this environment where people were yeah. not spending anymore at dollars. And at the same time, the demand for news was really much higher. Yeah. So, okay. Sorry. Just one more here. So hyperlocal of course means like geographically close to where you are. I mean, it could mean speaking in the right language to a niche group of users. So, you know, maybe not geographically dispersed, but generally hyperlocal means geographically tight. And I think that you still brushed over, you gave us a little bit more color on how hard that was to pull off. But just one more like curiosity in the space, when you were thinking about how to do something hyperlocal, Usually the use case that we give clients as a good place to start is can you leverage like weather data because there's so many APIs that you can use around weather data where you can then just like target it to a very small um, geographic area and you can deploy a slightly different offer something like buy hot coffee versus iced coffee if the weather equals plus or minus a certain degree, right? Like that's pretty easy logic. It's simple, but it's a nice way to create hyper local automation. So did you guys pick one topic? Like you said, we're going to cover like COVID outbreak in every city mm-hmm. and you did the same thing or how did you tackle that algorithm start? No. So for at first, it was pretty rudimentary of like select, you know, the top five news of this particular location that got the most click, but as well the best interaction time. Because again, we want to favor quality over just the yeah. clickability. And we'll like turn those five into an ad, right? Then, you know, we did iterate on weather, COVID statistics, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, the top local news did still overperform those. I think for weather, the challenge we had when we started working with AccuWeather and getting the data in our app was that whether it's Google or Facebook, it, there is a few hours between the time you send an ad and the time it's actually live and we, because yeah. <laughs> you know, they, have, they have safety filters and stuff. The weather changed pretty quickly in many locations. Yeah. It's not like raining for a full week, except in San yeah. Francisco for the last few weeks. <laughs> so as, as a result, that was always a challenge for us. And I think the only exception were very intense, like California fires or a hurricane where mm-hmm. there is, you know, more than yeah. a few days. So that worked. Uh, rather well. Uh, we created even a disaster hub to make sure we're keeping people appraised in real time. Of okay. That makes sense. So even then, it sounds like your recommendation, especially for a company that's just starting out, if you are picking lots of geographic locations and that's the complexity where the scale of what you're trying to do is many places, you are still keeping the content algorithm that you used very basic, top yeah. five, most clicked based on a single criteria and then keep location, the challenging component. I think that's good wisdom. And then, you know, we had the ad quality, right? We ended up, for example, we really value the fact of of not portraying negatively minorities in the US. So we built a a custom filter that was removing headshots. And, you know, that took a lot of machine learning engineering for that. We had to feed about 3,000 headshots, right, to a very large Mm -hmm. sample so that the filtering will work, but we still kept in mind our values of quality information and overall didn't want to, 
make you know return biases worse and i think that was the right thing to do and sometimes you know, it takes time and efforts but you just know that you have a sort of a duty especially if you're in the new space right yeah to have a certain quality standard in your ads which wasn't the case of some of the competitors but that was our choice of course yeah so you're you're still an advisor to smart news but you're up to something new tell us a little bit about remix some of uh, and what you're up to there yeah during the course of the smart news experience, I was lucky enough to have uh, two team members, Jenny and Jordi, that initiated a diversity, equity, inclusion initiative after the death of George Floyd, which obviously when you're in the news space, right, we had a lot of content that was about it. And I think they started this initiative when after, you know, some internal meetings, they were like, well, so what are we doing about it, right? And as an executive sponsor, I was like, I believe in your guest initiative. I want to be behind it and join you guys in this journey. We did some training. We did a bunch of things. And ultimately, I realized that there was really a gap in the space of diversity, equity, inclusion. A lot of the content is very top down, pretty much like lectures. And ultimately, not necessarily things that people could truly relate to. And we had a for example, trouble getting our engineers, especially those born abroad, to really engage with this initiative. And ultimately, I saw a friend of mine, Maxim in France, was building something where we're thinking about a very short journey of 10, 15 minutes on a specific topic, like LGBTQ plus inclusion, for example. And I was like, hey, I think if you add metrics to that, you could have really something that could resonate, not just in France and Europe, but even in the US, there is a gap in the market. And that's why I decided to join Remixed on the top of my own personal journey where I was like, really wanted to do something more than just, you know, mobile app marketing. <laughs> and I told myself like being involved in the product, working directly with engineers, being involved with all the operation side and making sure clients pay on time when you're a SaaS platform. Um, all those things were just interesting because, you know, I turned 40 and I'm like, it's, it's about time I stretch my skills again. <laughs> <laughs> that can relate. Very cool intersection. Fabian, before we let you go, we always love to just ask a couple of questions that are more fun. I'm going to start with my favorite question. Um, We all work in this world of trying to build truly sticky engagement experiences in the brands that we work for and work with. Um, You were doing that with Smart News, certainly trying to figure out what drives true loyalty, what actually makes fans of any given brand or product actually loyal. So my question for you is, which brands are you truly loyal to and why? What do you love about them? No, it's a great question. I will have to, you know, go with a geeky answer, which is like Blizzard, you know, more like uh, they, they are an amazing geek. Like Dairy Queen? No, no. Uh, Blizzard from, you know, the gaming company that did World of Warcraft, you know, Warcraft and so on. I think it's always remarkable to me. And they've been acquired that part of this giant right, Activision Blizzard company yeah. that's part of Microsoft. So if anything, right, not the most creative company in the world. What I find amazing is their versatility, right? They did racing yeah. game, they did MMO game, they did strategy game, they did like shooters, so many different types of product. And yet, yeah. I think they always retain an amazing community because they always respected the fact that in games, quality matters, A, yeah. but B as well, listening to your community and their demands and iterating on it. And so... For me, it's one of those brands that's built over time. And I think they got acquired for a huge amount of money by Activision, you know, a few years back. Mm. But I was like, yeah, it's worth every penny because people will always respect games they release and consider them in their journey. And then, you know, maybe a second geeky brand that I'm really engaging with, thanks to my daughter, is Pokemon. 
Oh, Same nice. thing. Those guys yeah. released in 1996. When it comes to mobile games, they have some incredible games. Of course, Pokemon Go from Niantic, Pokemon Unite from Tencent, mm-hmm. and so on. They work with the best. And they really, I think, embrace new technology, even partner with Netflix, right, to release a new series on Netflix. And it's not easy when you are the Pokemon company is a joint venture, right, with Nintendo. Initially, they were pretty conservative for a long time. And they really, you know, turned around and became great at licensing, great at working with the emerging platform in China, in Europe, in the US. And so I have a lot of respect for the company and the universe they've created. And I think it's one of the rare property for kids that I think is a lot less sexist than most, a lot more gender balanced and gender neutral and not creating, you know, gender stereotypes. So, hey, plus one on that as a DNI platform uh, co-founder. Yeah, for sure. You know, Pokemon is that's the first time we've heard that answer. And it's it's definitely in the cult like brand. You know, a lot of times we're talking about these cult like brands. So I really appreciate that answer because it's it's a new one and one that maybe falls under the radar sometimes. So that's a great answer. I love that. Awesome. Well, Fabian, thank you so much for joining us on Room for Growth. Before we let you go, where can people find you? Are you a a LinkedIn poster, a a Twitter guy? Uh, What's the best way for people to find and connect with you? Twitter is more to get angry and confrontational. So from my perspective, not necessarily the best, unless you want to discuss politics, I'm always happy or economics. But I think LinkedIn <laughs> is really where I think it's a great content platform. They did an amazing work on the curation and keeping, you know, the platform uplifting and positive. Yeah. So that's usually where I post. Awesome. Great. Well, uh, look forward to connecting more in the future. And thank you for giving us your time today on Room for Growth. And I will not try to solve an accent in the closing, but thank you, Billy. And thank you, Billy. <laughs> nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you.